And we're back. This is Max Sanders out in Radio Land. Well, not Radio Land because does anyone listen to radio anymore? I don't. I don't even know the stations. I remember 97.1, the ticket, was like the sports station in Boston when I was a kid, and that was awesome. But now everything's podcast, which is about a thousand times better. So apologies to radio, but yesterday's news. So there's a podcast, or I don't even know if it's defined as a podcast because no one's listening. It's just me on a computer, just getting reps in, getting practice, seeing if I can do this by myself because I'm doing a movie review podcast with my friend, Morris George Shapiro, his name. He kind of sounds like a serial killer now that I think of it, you know, with the three names, but, uh, Doing the solo podcast is about a thousand times harder than doing it with a partner. And it's painful at the time. Like right now, it's just, you got to fill the dead air entirely and not use the same words all the time. I notice, you know, there it is. I say, you know, a bunch. And also once you latch on a couple words or descriptions, you kind of keep harping on them or keep going back to them when you're trying to think quickly rather than taking another second and kind of adding more ingredients to the word salad you're creating, which is the way I like to envision this, is that I'm creating a meal for you via adverbs, verbs, adjectives, and nouns. So you want to get as many flavors and colors in there, and I want you to be pleased with the meal. And if I'm just giving you, you know, tons of romaine lettuce and four-day-old croutons, that's not what you came here to listen to. So working on that as well. So the topic I picked was the 1997 movie Gattaca, which my family, we watch a movie together every week. It's pretty fucking cute. We watch one movie, you know, one of us picks, we kind of go in a round robin uh, formation. And then on Sunday nights at 8.30, we all get on Zoom and uh, discuss the movie. And this was my brother-in-law's, Nate's uh, pick. And I couldn't have been more excited because I love this movie. It's a little-known movie, I think. I mean, it kind of came on big after uh, it came out because in 97, it cost $36 million to make and made a whopping $12 million. So it bombed. And I think it got kind of more traction in DVD and tapes and all because it's just a really smart fucking movie. Like actually NASA determined in 2011 that this was the most accurate sci-fi movie of all time. But they also told me that Armageddon was the least accurate. So fuck that because that movie is just a gem and everything in it is realistic and drillers can go to an asteroid and save the world. I truly believe that. So, so NASA doesn't always have it right, but you know, props to them for saying this movie was, you know, that kind of on the ball. So why was it on the ball? Because this movie is about the future of kind of discrimination being genetic altering. And when you have a kid, you could have a faith birth, you know, just kind of a normal birth where there's possible defects and possible, you know, health risks and whatnot. Or you could have a genetically altered birth where they kind of eliminate diseases. You could pick eye color. You could pick, you know, how tall they were, 
sex, et cetera. You know, almost uh, a genetic supermarket where you can pick all the ingredients for your kid, which is controversial. And, you know, it's a fun discussion because, of course, you want to get rid of diseases. And, of course, you know, you don't want to have people with lower life expectancy. But at the same time, does that make the haves and the have-nots in the world kind of get broken into two more kind of self-contained groups where how can someone who's genetically uh, inferior, how can they kind of get a leg up when the world is kind of taking all the genetic supreme beings and giving them the best positions because that's how they're testing for aptitude in skill sets and all in this movie. So let's back it up first. So first of all, uh, this movie was directed by Andrew Nicole. And this was his first movie, which is just good for him. I mean, to come out the gate like that, that is just impressive because he's a New Zealand music direct, music video director. And it shows because this movie is just beautiful. Like everything sepia toned. It's just nice, clean shots. He's almost more focused on kind of how the movie looks rather than the dialogue sometimes, which at points is a little bit wooden. But it's also kind of, the dialogue kind of goes into that 90s, very kind of a little bit hokey, takes itself very seriously kind of movie vibe that was in the 90s before people became kind of Deadpool, fourth wall breaking, you know, self-effacing, can laugh at things. This was kind of a movie that took itself, you know, very seriously. And it resonates for the most part, but at certain points, the dialogue is just laughable. But the way it was shot was just incredible. And you know it's going to be a smart, kind of smarmy movie for a few reasons. One, the name Gattaca, all the letters are based on letters that are in DNA sequencing. So he made a very smart title. And then the opening credits come out and uh, usually like when an open credits come and they give you a quote, you're like, okay, this movie's going to try to tell something profound or it's going to be awesome. Like the town where it's like Watertown is the, or Charlestown is the number one bank robbing uh, city in North America. There are 585 bank robberies a year, like two every eight minutes or something like that. I mean, that math doesn't work, but you get the point. And that, I mean, that just sets my hair on fire. I love when movies do that. But this, this one, this movie doesn't have one quote. It has two quotes to start the movie. So, you know, whoever is directing it or the vision for this thing, they are arrogant because they're like, I can't even get what this movie is about in, in one profound quote. I need to show you two. So the movie takes place in the future and it doesn't even tell us when in the future which, you know, bravo, just the cojones on a director to just be like, listen, this is in the future. I'm not going to give you a specific time to mull over. You're going to have to try to get a feel for when, how, how far ahead in the future this is. And it's kind of, it's kind of grating. And it's kind of like, you feel that he's kind of, this is a flex from the director, but at the same time, you know, bravo for confidence. So I was in and The movie basically uh, follows this one character, Vincent, who they show growing up, but was played in adult form by Ethan Hawke. And it's him as a faith birth, you know, a non-genetically altered birth at around 28, 29 years old, uh, 
trying to fake his way into the space program by using the blood, urine, and, you know, hair follicles of a supreme, you know, genetic birth who had an act played by uh, Jude Law to perfection, by the way. If you want a arrogant British entitled kind of trust fund kid, I mean, get young Jude Law. That is just, that was, that was an ultimate pick. I just, he just chose the scenery and just that face. He just, he just wants to, he just wants to sass someone who's below him at all points. And it's just written on his face. And so his character, Jerome, had an act, was a Olympic level swimmer who was a silver medalist and who broke his back uh, in Mexico. So there was no record of it, but he needs money and income still. So it's kind of a shared ladder is what it's called. There's a broker who set them both up and basically Vincent is going to use all of Jerome's DNA material and fake being Jerome uh, to be, to get into space because Jerome, I mean, because, because Vincent has a heart defect and he's only supposed to live to the age 30. And this is the only way he could get into the space program. Cause I mean, they show you beforehand that he's only, he could only be get a job as a janitor and that he, no matter how hard he studied and they show, I mean, it's really on the nose. They show him uh, doing in the air sit-ups, you know, like through your door frame while using the NASA kind of uh, text manual as weight and he falls to the ground collapsing. I mean, just some of the things they do in this movie are just very heavy handed. And it's, it's almost hilarious. Like, when he's a janitor and he's working at the NASA space station as a janitor, he's cleaning the windows and looking through the glass glass wall, literally, while someone, well, one of his, uh, one of his uh, fellow employees says, don't get any ideas, Vincent, which is just, you know, if you were writing a farce of this movie, you'd write something like that. But... I mean, the movie's wooden dialogue, it, I can understand it because they kind of pay a lot more attention to the small details, like the kind of racism or stere- or uh, the kind of separate uh, races of, you know, genetically superior and genetically inferior. They call it geno- genoism, which I liked a lot, just a very clever term. And also... They call it uh, what Vincent is doing by using someone else's DNA material. He's basically a borrowed ladder. And side note, the movie shows kind of Vincent growing up and they show Ethan Hawke voicing this all over, which Ethan Hawke has a second career in voiceover uh, work because he just got this kind of, it's this hopeful, matter of fact, kind of everyman quality to this voiceover, you kind of just want to follow, you want to root for the guy. It just seems like he's an underdog and he believes in himself. And he's also doing voiceover work in Great Expectations the the year after. And if you haven't seen that movie, fucking run to your nearest TV and rent it because that movie is just napalm. I just love it. It's Robert De Niro. It's prime Gwyneth Paltrow. And it's Anton, it's the guy who directed Gravity, and I can't pronounce his name, 
it's Hispanic and I don't want to be racist by just saying like Sanchez or something like that because that's really just not who I want to be. So I'm going to look it up. <laughs> so it's something impronounceable. I want to say Anton Segur, but that's the bad guy from old country, no country for old men. So that's rather embarrassing, but it's close to that. And I am stalling for time right now. And ah, here we go. Alf- Alfonso Cuaron. There we go. Directed uh, Great Expectations. So similar to Anton Segur, I feel less terrible about myself but that movie is just wild and beautiful and kind of the same thing like it's focused on visual shots like this movie i mean this movie there's elegant music right from the beginning it's the scores are actually pretty similar and it's just got these swelling violins and there's just kind of the indomitable spirit of the human soul is kind of how I would describe how the orchestra kind of plays towards Vincent. And so Vincent, you know, they show him growing up. They show that right away when he's born, they kind of take a test of his blood and then he's only gonna live for 30 years. He's gonna have a 99% chance in his life of being, uh, or of dying via heart attack or kind of a heart disease. And, so his parents on their second go with a kid decide to have a genetically altered birth. And that leads to their, his brother, Anton, who, you know, is taller than him and, you know, better at him in sports. And Vincent's got these big, sad glasses. I mean, they really ham it up, you know, to show the contrast between the two of them. And the main reason, and the main thing they show between them is they always swim together out in the ocean, which is just a fantastic shot. You know, just these two bodies and, you know, water and sun. And it just, it looks like this Pacific ocean goes on forever. And they just, they race to see who can go farther without stopping, you know, a very like eight to 10 year old kid kind of thing. And it's just a great contrast to show that Vincent could never beat him. And finally, when they're 17, 18 years old, they do it once more. And for once Vincent beats him and, you know, there's no explanation. There's no, like there's no reason why he should have done this, you know, with all his defects and Anton being so perfect, but he decides that's his moment that he can try anything or that the world, if you try hard enough, you can kind of conquer, you know, the genetic fault failures of your body. So he leaves home, never talks to his family ever again. And 10 years later, he's trying to, you know, infiltrate nasa which in this world seems like the most elite of jobs and it is nowadays too i would say i mean to be an astronaut i think that's top one percent of you know what people admire and how smart you got to be although i do remember wasn't there like a female nasa astronaut who like caught her husband cheating and she drove like across five states using adult diapers and then killed somebody uh, killed the mistress. I mean, that could just be her, but you know, it's kind of funny because they do all these psych evaluations, uh, and make sure you don't crack up in space. And this woman, you know, she had a bad relationship at home and went bananas. So maybe NASA doesn't have it all together. And also they thought Armageddon wasn't realistic. So fuck them because Bruce Willis for life. Steve Buscemi is my spirit animal and Michael Clark dunking crying you know, emotionally before they go into space. It's just probably one of my favorite moments ever. 
So I I don't I kind of want to make this just about Armageddon now because it's it's one of my favorite movies and it should be yours too. And so back to Gattaca though, the smarter movie, you know, on the on the ends of the spectrum, smart smart doesn't always seem to you know win the battle of what people want to watch though. No one particularly liked the smartest kid in class and if we look back at all the movies that we enjoy as a culture, I don't think the most clever or the most intelligent or the most realistic kind of premise of movies tend to be the ones we gravitate towards. You know, we want aliens, we want action, we want thought provoking, but you know, it doesn't have to be in the, we don't want a sense of realism actually. I think we want, you know, fantasy. We want to be taken away from the doldrums of life and go on a rocket ship somewhere. And this movie even though it's in the future, it's not, there's not much, you know, intense action or much, you know, kind of spy versus spy or gunplay or, you know, phantasmal creatures, you know, from some Harry Potter movie. It's just, this is what the future could look like. And I guess that's not as sexy for the general public. And when people want to watch three, four movies a year, you know, which is kind of the average person. I watch one movie a day because <laughs> I don't. Ha- I have a lot of free time, and I enjoy movies. So once you get to my realm, you kind of want to see something different and unique because you've seen the stereotypical winter movies over and over again. So when something's a little different, like this one, it kind of sticks in your craw, and you kind of remember it. So I think this is the moviegoers movie, which sounds really elitist and jackassy, but it's fitting. So I'm establishing that that is a term for this. This is the hipster doofus, you know, uh, comic book guy from The Simpsons kind of poo-pooing the, you know, regular hits and going into deep cuts. This is what Gattaca was. Although I don't know what the culture as a whole thinks of it now. Uh, my brother-in-law was pretty excited to watch it again. So there's one fan. I don't know. Maybe I'll ask some friends and see how, what they felt about it. But like I said, this movie just kind of came and went, but back to the film itself. So Vincent with that last swim beating his brother, he's just like, you know what? Fuck this. Uh, I'm going to try to be a borrowed ladder and I'm going to, you know, infiltrate NASA and go on this very elite uh, space mission, which they go, they say it's seven days every 70 years, which again, really smart by the director because you're like seven days every 70 years. How long have they been doing this? How far in the future are we? And you're trying to do the math and you're trying to figure it out and they don't give you no other clues and it's infuriating, but like it kind of invests you in the movie in a way that, you wouldn't otherwise if you just knew it was 2027 or 2,227 or something like that. So he gets one of these DNA brokers and it's Monk from the show Monk. I don't know the guy's name. He's also the dad in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. He's kind of got that Jufro, black hair, curly kind of hair. He's a good actor for the most part. He's also in this kid's movie called Polly where there was a talking parrot and that was really cute, but I was like seven when I saw it. So might not have been as good as I thought. And 
his name is something like Al something. I can't remember. Um, he is Tony Schlob or Schlahab. God, that's a hard last name, but what a terrible name. He definitely didn't change his name <laughs> when he came to Hollywood. And if he did, he needs his money back because that's just a burning orphanage of a name. I can't even, I can't even pronounce it. And I like him and I want to get it right for him. But anyways, he's the broker and you know, you meet Jude Law's Jerome and he's just, he's got empty booze bottles on the floor and he's just kind of has that British look of disgust that I'm better than you, even though he's kind of squandering his life now. And you can tell he's a drunk and he's kind of sweaty and he's pasty, but he's, you know, he's definitely high born and just, and this is his first American movie. So props to that. I mean, Jude Law, if you want someone who's, you know, the arrogant, uh, but charming guy you love to hate, you, you get Jude Law. I mean, this, uh, the talented Mr. Ripley, where he's just, he's probably the most attractive man in a movie ever is Dickie in the talented Mr. Ripley. Just this bronzed Adonis, 1960s, uh, wealthy shipping merchant's son who's living in Italy on daddy's, you know, credit card and is just playing jazz and just, you know, charming the pants off everyone around him. That's another one. If you haven't seen, Oh man, just, you're going to want to move to Italy though. So if you're not financially prepared to do that, maybe don't see the movie, but I don't like watching movies where I could be heavily influenced about something I don't want to do or can't do. Like there's a Netflix documentary now, right now on the psychedelics of psychedelic drugs effects on celebrities. They're just telling stories about it and it seems kind of fun and, you know, cartoony and campy. And I'm just, I definitely want to watch it, but at the same time, it's going to influence me. I'll be like, maybe I should try mushrooms sometime, but no, of course I shouldn't do that, especially during a pandemic. Uh, so that one's on the back burner till, you know, it's less influential in my life because nothing going on right now. Like I watched the movie goon last night, which is about a hockey thug and I am a brittle Jewish, you know, <laughs> a suburbanite of upper middle class background who's never really gotten in a fight. And at the end of that movie, I wanted to be an enforcer. So easily influenced by movies. I'm not sure if that's everybody, but for me, you know, I mean, everything resonates about 10 times more than most people. Like I'm going to watch RoboCop tonight. By the end of that movie, I might want to be a cyborg. So if I talk like this in the next one, you know why. I really hope not, though, because it's people who talk like robots who aren't robots. That's not a good look. But uh, back, back to the, back to Jerome and Vincent. So they have a great montage, kind of like that generic pretty woman scene of uh, Vincent changing his contacts, uh, altering his teeth, his hair, and kind of crazy. So Vincent is two inches shorter than Jerome. So he has to get like leg surgery where they like, like cut his bones and like grow them somehow. And he's just on the floor with these kind of erector sets around his legs and he can't move. And it seems <laughs> seriously painful. And I wonder if it's worth, I mean, if, if it would be worth it to do that for the, but it just shows, you know, he really wants to, he's got the fire in his belly. He's got to accomplish his dream. Plus this would be a pretty shitty movie if like 20 minutes in they're like, you gotta be taller to, 
you know, achieve your dream. And he just says no. And that's how the movie ends. That, that wouldn't be a great movie. It'd be a very confusing movie. <laughs> I think Bill would be pretty upset. 20 minutes in, just the end. And so he's starting to, you know, look, ex- he looks kind of exactly like Jude Law. He has his fingerprint with the little blood pricks in it and everything else. And he's ready to kind of get the job. And he goes in for the interview and he pisses in a cup as a drug test and they test it. And right then, you know, he's prepared for the interview and super nervous about, you know, what questions are they going to ask and are they going to put him through the ringer? And, you know, does he know all the information? They literally take the piss and put it in a little vial and they're a positive, a valid comes up and the, the doctor goes, congratulations. And Vincent's like, well, what about the interview? And the doctor goes, that was the interview. And it's just kind of this simplistic, great, you know, mic drop of like how important the genetic uh, kind of superiority is for this world that, you know, nothing else really matters. So it's kind of Vincent's first look into how that, how his life is going to be from now on. And then he goes back to Jerome's apartment and Jerome has like the saddest apartment ever. I mean, it is, it is the Robert De Niro in heat. I don't have furniture, uh, kind of wooden floors, empty booze bottles everywhere. I mean, Jerome is definitely in a, in a bad, sad place. And they have a, there's an incinerator in the place, which I'm not sure why he would have an incinerator there for no reason, but it's for Vincent to scrape off all his body flakes and his hair flakes and to kind of just burn them. But what kind of apartment comes with an incinerator? I mean, is that something in the future for instead of trash, you burn stuff up? I don't know. I never thought about it, but that's super weird that he has one in there. And so Vincent is being a borrowed ladder or a degenerate. Uh, so again, another fantastic term. Oh, and also, uh, in Jerome's apartment, he has like a double helix staircase, which, you know, looks like DNA as it looks, you know, under a microscope. So that's, you know, just cool little things like that. And suddenly though, uh, you know, Vincent as Jerome uh, is working and he knows, he's just really smart. You can tell that he's kind of the A pupil of everyone in in the uh, company. So he's just busy bodying along and doing well. And then suddenly the director of the uh, NASA program is murdered. Dum, dum, dum. And then, you know, a new kind of aspect of the movie comes in. You know, it's kind of a 1930s, 1940s whodunit kind of uh, killer caper kind of thing. And, of course, they find one of uh, Vincent's, Vincent's actual eyelashes at the crime scene. And now they're looking for Vincent. And there's the FBI's involved, and so are the cops. And they all wear fedoras, all the cops. It's weird. Like, this movie, everyone kind of, even though it's, you know, hundreds of years in the future, he kind of retro retrofit the rest of the movie to be in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. Like, everyone wears nice cocktail dresses when they go out, and they go to kind of, like, speakeasies or, like, Art Deco uh, piano performances or, you know... The cops are wearing fedoras and all the cars are 1960s style 
like Studebakers and stuff like that, but with electric components, which is a smart idea. I guess they didn't have the budget to make futuristic cars. So they just took cars that looked futuristic in the time and made them electric. So I thought that was a nice touch. Although it turns out, I mean, the director, Andrew Nicole, made another movie in time where everyone can live forever. It's with Justin Timberlake. And you kind of have like a tick down clock on your forearm. And you can buy time, basically, to keep existing. And in that, all the cars were the same. You know, the uh, 1920s to 1950s cars that were futuristic, though. So clearly, he just dug it. And it's kind of more his thing than it was unique to this movie. So I'm not sure. I mean, you don't know that at the time that other movie was made 10 years later. So why would you know? But at the time, very cool. And so Vincent's freaking out that, you know, they're going to catch him and that he's just done for if they're going to recognize him. And Jerome just tells him, he's like, I don't recognize you. Like, you know, I mean that you're me, basically. They're not going to look at your physicality and they're not going to want to believe that you infiltrated, you know, you as an invalid uh, infiltrated, you know, one of their most important uh, kind of elite camps and that. And plus he didn't kill him. So, I mean, there's that going for him. So Vincent's freaking out saying, you know, I can't do this anymore, you know, and he's throwing out blood and he's throwing out urine, freaking out and Jerome talks him down and Jerome has a great line. He goes, we have to get drunk immediately, which is just, you know, when a British guy tells you that, like a good looking British guy, you just got to. But although I had one quibble with Jerome, uh, he seemed to be drinking vodka the whole time, just straight vodka. And I don't know, high-born, you know, hoity-toity kind of old I mean, British guy who's, you know, silver spoon in his ass kind of thing. I think he should have been a Scotch guy. Like a Lagavulin, Johnny Walker Blue, I even like a nice whiskey. Just he didn't, I mean, like, what is he drinking, screwdrivers at like 7 in the morning? That seems like someone, you know, in Daytona Beach, you know, who's going for spring break or something some guy put in a thermos at NASCAR. I mean, just... It didn't. It, it didn't apply to Jerome. I thought they maybe maybe Andrew Nichol didn't drink, so he's just like I don't know. Let's make him. Let's make him drink vodka. So, as a bartender, which I am, it just bothered me. So, small small thing. I don't think it's that big a deal. But uh, so Jerome is. I mean Vincent as Jerome is kind of just walking on eggshells during uh, the murder investigation, and you kind of learn more about the technology uh, at the time. Like someone, there's like a DNA testing facility that anyone can go to. Like some, let's say you went on a date and you kiss somebody and you could just go get your lips tested so you could get a uh, printout of the rating of the person you kissed. Just little things like that are just very cool. And they're showing, you know, the cops kind of circling around and kind of giving ideas. One of the cops... The main FBI cop, the younger guy, kind of seems to have an idea that the invalid, uh, you know, is probably the guy who did it. And and the other cops aren't sure, so they're just kind of arguing it out. You know, just typical cop stuff. And same time, uh, Vincent meets Irene, who's played by Uma Thurman, who is kind of in the same NASA program as as Vincent is, but is kind of on a lower level. She has a heart condition, like a minor one, but not enough to, you know, keep her out of NASA, just kind of keep her 
on the ground. She's, she's kind of more a person that does logistical work. And they start having chemistry. Although I will argue their chemistry is just bleh. It's just kind of a lukewarm bath of, I don't know, gin, like flat ginger ale. It's just not, it's not great. It's, you know, it's jello for dessert. No one's excited about jello for dessert, which is hilarious because this is where they met uh, in real life and they ended up getting married uh, from this, but they got divorced too. So I guess that chemistry wasn't that strong to begin with. I thought Jerome and Vincent had a better chemistry than Irene and Vincent, but uh, whatever. So, you know, I guess I think Uma Thurman, she doesn't, she doesn't kind of do it for me when she's playing straight laced roles. You know, in this one, she has her bun all done up and her, you know, suits are done or pressed to perfection. And I don't know. I like Uma Thurman kind of crazy and, you know, Pulp Fiction ODing or killing, you know, a hundred Asian gangsters and kill Bill. But uh, she just, she has this very unique kind of wild look to her. So I think you got to, you got to lean into what God gave you. And, you know, if you look like a dangerous prehistoric, uh, like pterodactyl bird, just lean into that and be, you know, a wild card. She should be a wild card. And in this, she's just kind of, she's just kind of a straight lace, you know, a do-gooder, you know, a non-rebel. So, you know, I think we could have done better for who, who would, have been, who would have been refined at this point? Maybe Jennifer Conley or something like that. I could see Jennifer Conley with her hair done all back straight. And, you know, just the kind of, she looks like a painting. She just looks elegant. Uh, Uma Thurman kind of looks more like something Banksy would do. Which, I mean, that might be an insult because Banksy's stuff takes street artwork, kind of takes 10 seconds to do, and it's more about where he puts it. But anyways, I digress very much so. So Irene and uh, Vincent start dating as this murder investigation keeps going on. And they go to a piano concert where they have a six-fingered piano uh, pianist. I said pianist, not penis. I said penis, not pianist. See, do they sound similar, though? I think they sound pretty close. Pianist, penis. I'm saying penis a lot for no reason. But, I mean, when you get to say pianist, you might as well bring up the fact that it sounds like penis. So pianist, he's a... Six-fingered pianist. <laughs> and, you know, he's playing these amazing things. And I wonder, they don't explain if he, if they asked him to be genetically altered like that, like his parents, or he just came out that way. And if they did get him genetically modified that way, where does it stop? Like, can you get a unicorn horn? Or can you get, you know, uh, like Wolverine claws? Or, you know, uh, like a mermaid's bottom half? Like, where does it stop? is where I, I'm, I'm kind of curious about. But, you know, they watch the performance. Uh, the cops kind of almost, uh, they're doing like random uh, car stops at this point, and they almost get Vincent, but he cleverly kind of takes his contacts out and has the right uh, blood in his uh, finger rather than taking a DNA swab. And they, uh, kind of funny, kind of a random scene. Uh, Jerome is just walking around and a, and a random cop who's played by Dean Norris, who, if you don't know, is the uh, brother of Walter White on Breaking Bad. He's Hank, you know, the DEA agent. This is young him, just as a random cop for one scene. And he gives Jerome a hard time, and then he finds out who Jerome is, and then Jerome does 
the best elite British snob, kind of like, I want your badge number. Who, who do you think you are? Kind of thing. And Jude Law's probably top three for that. I could see John Malkovich is pretty good at that, kind of the entitled douche. And I'm trying to think off the top of my head. John Cusack, I could see doing that too. Just like, you have to have this kind of snooty but likable, I'm better than everybody kind of vibe. So, I mean, the murder investigation keeps going as Irene and uh, Vincent's love keeps, you know, blossoming. And, you know, they're getting more intense with the testing at the facilities because they think maybe Vincent is a borrowed ladder. And so they try to do an intravenous uh, blood sample of everyone uh, at the at NASA. And this seems pretty cool because Vincent uh, kind of has a sleight of hand kind of card trick way of getting through it. He kind of jerks back when the, he hits the vein, when the doctor hits his vein and he throw, he has a blood sample in his hand and he kind of grabs that one and kind of reacts and holds the other one, which has Jerome's blood in it and gives it to him. It's a very kind of oceans 11 kind of Matt Damon swindle. So I dug that, you know, just little things like that. And so Vincent and Irene are going on more dates. Uh, They go to like a 1940s highball joint and martinis, all that kind of stuff. Cops are getting closer and closer. And it seems like the main cop kind of has it in for Vincent and you're not sure why, you know, but uh, we'll find out later as this dum-dum-dum. And so, you know, the investigation keeps going and... Finally, uh, it, turned, it turns out, even though the main cop is kind of figuring out that Vincent possibly is Jerome, and Irene kind of gets inklings as well, uh, right before the cop is about to figure out Jerome is and who he says he is, because he went to Jerome's apartment and took the DNA sample of the real Jerome, who had to dramatically... Uh, with no legs, walk up those double helix staircase, or not walk, uh, crawl. And it kind of showed Irene that the real Jerome wasn't, you know, that clearly wasn't who Ethan Hawke was. It was Jude Law. So she's freaked out, and she might, you know, spill the beans. And it seems like the cop is going to go test kind of that blood against other blood. And it seems like the cop's, you know, one step away from nailing them. And then, bam, the cop gets a call. And it turns out the other director, uh, who's played by Gore Vidal, who's like a historic novelist in American history, who's written like 25 books. So that was random. But it turns out he did it because the mission was jeopardized by the other director and he couldn't have the mission jeopardized. You know, a little bit of a stretch. You know, this was an older gentleman. This guy seemed like 75. And they said they killed him by bashing his head in with a keyboard. Not sure if uh, (laughs) the director, if the other director had it in him. And also they said he spit in the eye of the uh, director and that's how they found it because it wasn't like seen at first. I mean, this is pretty in the future. I think they'd figure that out uh, right away. But also, I mean, a lot of other pitfalls. It seems like there's not many cameras at NASA. It seems like a lot of people are sneaking around like Vincent should have been caught kind of sprinkling, you know, Jerome's uh, genetic material around his desk or cleaning his genetic material you think they would have put two and two together, but you know, it's a movie. So don't have to think about it that much. And 
So then uh, finally uh, we find out though that uh, the FBI agent actually is Anton, uh, Vincent's brother. And that's why he's been so kind of adamant about, uh, you know, finding him and bringing him to justice. And so when they finally meet, because Vincent knows that, you know, Anton, I think he's known that Anton's been the cop the whole time. And, you know, he just got to nip it in the bud before he goes on this space journey. And it seems like Anton's going to turn him in. But then, of course, in movie fashion, they decide to swim again, you know, to show, because Vincent wants to show that he's, he is, you know, worthy of, uh, of being in this elite program, even ahead of like what an FBI agent is, you know, he kind of pushed himself to be this kind of, uh, top 1% of society. And so they swim and finally, and uh, yet again, uh, Vincent wins and there's a great line. Uh, Anton's like, how are you doing this? And, uh, Vincent goes, I never save anything for the swim back. Just like, you know, that sports movie kind of in your fire, in your belly inspiration. You're like, yeah, good for Vincent. You know, you want to, it's like a halftime speech. You're just fired up. And so he gets to, he gets to go uh, to uh, space and have this whole, you know, one year in space, which is his dream the whole time. Who knows what happens afterwards. And Interesting enough, though, uh, right before uh, they are going uh, up in space, and there shouldn't be any more genetic testing at this point, but the doctors say there's a new policy where they have to pee one more time. And the doctor in the first scene told Vincent, he's like, I need to tell you about my son sometime. And it's a throwaway line. You know, of course, people talk about their kids. And you're like, yeah, sure, whatever. Doctor seems nice. And in this one, he tells him how his kid is genetically flawed and that he's a big fan of Jerome, quote unquote, Jerome. And, you know, he, he tells him he can be anything he wants to be. And as, as Vincent uh, has his piss tested and it says, you know, invalid, uh, the doctor changes it to valid. And, you know, it's clear that he's been rooting for him the whole time because he wants his son to know that he can do what he wants, even though he's seen as an invalid. So cute little, I mean, that's such a great tie-in. It's kind of like that Breaking Bad, all the pieces matter. Uh, everything's tied together. You know what I mean? Like there's no, there's no fat on this movie. Everything kind of means something later. And like I said, you know, just a clever, clever movie. And uh, the doctor says, just for future reference, right-handed men don't hold it with their left. <laughs> and he says, you're going to miss your flight, Vincent. And just what a great, what a great mic drop. That's just, whoever played that doctor, props to him. He's he has a little role in Justified as a a uh, kind of a corrupt uh, money broker for the Dixie Mafia. But I digress. He I mean he's been in some other stuff. He's just a good actor for like a very little role. And at the end, sadly, Jerome kills himself. Uh, he puts himself in the incinerator, so there's no trace of him. But I mean they they hinted at before that he had tried to commit suicide because you know he was never as good as he could have been. And, but it's, it, even though you're sad about it and you're kind of shocked, it's oddly fitting for the character. You know, you just feel like everything wanted to be closed out uh, in this movie. And then it ends with uh, Vincent kind of giving a monologue about maybe I'm going home because, you know, we all come from stars. It's just a beautiful ending. And that's the movie.
But uh, interesting enough, the movie actually was going to end with pictures of Albert Einstein, uh, Abe Lincoln, and John Kennedy uh, showing that in this world, this futuristic world, those three men wouldn't have existed because they had birth defects. And I guess the movie, when they tested it, it made people very uncomfortable. So they didn't put that in it. So, but it's still very, very, you know, thought provoking that some of the greatest, uh, you know, most affecting people of the, you know, the past few centuries are people who had genetic flaws. Uh, you know, Einstein had dyslexia. Lincoln had Marfan's disease or syndrome, which I don't, I don't know what that is, but it sounds bad. But uh, but they but he freed the slaves and you know wrote the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, you know Albert Einstein redefined physics and had some great spiky white hair. So good for him, good for them. And you know, I mean, it makes you think like humanity, kind of our greatest. Our greatest quality is the ability to overcome, I think. I think that's what the movie is saying, that conformity and technology can be useful, but kind of if they're taken too far, we kind of lose the uniqueness that makes us human. So that's what the movie was about. And that's and I really liked it. It's just it's clean, it's beautiful, it's it makes you think you could have a discuss you could have like an hour and a half discussion over a few beers with friends afterwards. Like, what does this really mean? So those are my thoughts. And that was my, uh, that was my iPhone saying something. Cause I accidentally hit it. Cause I am goofy as fuck. So, uh, yeah, I think that's, that covers everything. Plus I love Ethan Hawke and I mean, Jude law all day and you know, sci-fi movies in general, they're just, they have a special place in my heart because it's always fun to imagine about, you know, what can be, what could be, and, you know, what the future holds. For right now, I'm going to enjoy the presence. Present. Wow. I said presence. I don't have any presence. Although I would like some presence right now. I'd like a drone. But what would I use it for? It would scare my dogs too. So maybe I don't want a drone. But that's, I mean, that's something 10, 20 years ago. That seems like it was from the future. And that ties it all in. So that's my thoughts on Gattaca. Uh, goodbye, everybody. Or goodbye, John Smith, who's going to listen to this and probably no one else. <laughs>